Mist Rainwater. Hey, John. You have to art way more than I do on a schedule. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, what I do, what I do for a living with is still within my medium. Don't get me wrong, but. A city council meeting doesn't really have a whole lot of artistic. They don't want sure. the artistic uh, flex. <laughs> so I'm not doing Dutch angles and crazy camera moves and weird lighting and shit like that. Um, and I don't control the content that rolls in front of it. Um, that said, I don't really have to flex that much creatively. I don't even have to consider doing that. Everything that I do in terms of my creative output um, is self-mandated, right? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand of that, and we'll talk about that, but on the other hand of that, you are on a little bit more of a demanding schedule where you have to turn in a comic sure. panel. I don't know how you describe it, a series or whatever yeah, per uh, week. A webtoon, basically. Yeah. Okay, a webtoon. Yeah. It is its own thing. Yeah, but yeah. the the demand doesn't change, right? I mean, you get an off-season, but... For the most part, you're doing like a week to week type thing. Yeah. And despite all of us having great ideas, right? Everybody has a great, oh, I could do this, I could do that. Sometimes it don't come to you. Like a writer's block is a real thing, but artist block is also a real thing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm curious to know your process for finding inspiration. Like, where do you mine for ideas and creativity? Like, where, where what do you do to to find what you what it is you're going to do uh i mean at this point where i am in the as i'm making the last season of trailer park warlock a lot of the inspiration from it comes from it's kind of easy because a lot of it's just like resolving everything that i've begun previously yeah. right and that right. that's an easy source of uh inspiration but leading up to that everything that all the different sources of inspiration that come into that story uh, I come from a lot of different stuff. So, like, I have a character in the comic called um, Lenny McKinney, and he figures in pretty broadly into season five, and he's actually inspired by a real-life person by the name of Terrence McKenna. And uh, Terrence McKenna was a... He dubbed himself a shamanologist. Um, okay. Really what he did is he smoked a lot of pot and did a lot of shrooms. <laughs> That explains then, <laughs> the shamanologist. And then uh, went to uh, rich people retreats to kind of just talk about whatever the fuck <laughs> he wanted to talk about. Because he was able to, like, I'm very envious of what he got to do. Because he basically got to just get really high and say whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> and it was people just like, paid him for it. Yeah, and it was like the most outlandish, um, like, just psychedelic stoner stuff. To the point that I think at a certain point in his life, he actually uh, was butting head, butting heads with the fact that he just couldn't find the same inspiration that he had at the beginning. Because mm. there was a point, so this all winds into inspiration, right? There was a point in Terrence McKenna's life where he stopped doing shrimps. He had an incredibly bad experience where he, I guess he butted up against meaninglessness whatever that means, you know, this was something that was passed down by his brother, Dennis, but, um, basically he stopped shrooms altogether and doing shrooms was a big part of 
sort of the inspiration he brought into his talks. It actually, something he talked, Terrence talked about a lot was the fact that, because he was a brilliant orator. That's the thing is like, you listen to him talk and you kind of immediately start to snap in to what he's saying and kind of get hooked into it. Mm. Um, and he said, I mean, granted, these are the words of somebody who did a lot of shrooms and even like self self pronouncedly had said that he had schizophrenia for a bit. Uh, he said that his look, like his ability to talk had improved after doing shrooms. And so he kind of attributed it to, the shrooms basically because he had over time this experience where there were entities that he was talking to on his trips okay and felt the presence of this some kind of ineffable other in his life i can't wait to get back into this on our 420 episode but keep going <laughs> and so yeah, that i mean that is quite often not just for terrence and Kim, but for a lot of people uh, the encounter with the other you know like the ineffable other an encounter with quote unquote God or with nature or whatever is oftentimes a big source of inspiration for people. I've certainly had experiences in my life where I've had encounters with, um, you know, for lack of a better word, the divine, the ineffable things that are very hard to explain. And that certainly figures in as a major part of the inspiration for writing trailer park warlock in general, because I look at it as encounters with that, ineffable other are kind of absurd and if you're not able to laugh at it you could take it too seriously and taking mm. it too seriously i think often leads people into like dogmatic points of view like super fundamentalist religious points of view which can be very uh destructive you know in potential situations okay so i say all that to say like I guess another aspect of that inspiration is this this notion of what I want to say to readers, right? Or what I want to... The ideas I want to get across or the emotions I want to get across. Certainly, like, thinking about how the reader reacts to what I'm writing, to what I'm drawing, is a big inspiration because I want to get, you know... I want to get a reaction. I want to get some kind of feedback that tells me that I'm actually doing the job correctly. Okay. So I, I would say, you know, I, I could, there's a million other things, right. But I, I definitely, a big part of why I write trailer park warlock or what inspires me to write it is definitely talking about things that I like in my life. People who have inspired me and also just like media that inspired me. like there are two characters who are part of, uh, this governmental agency group that's just called the Masons. And they basically just Mulder and Scully, you know, because, like, I was big on X-Files growing up. So I wrote those characters into this story because I was like, it would be cool to have, because there's so much weirdness and confusion and absurdity, it would be cool to have two characters who were objective eyes into the story and can kind of be like, what the hell is going on here? You know? The exposition people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To, to basically level things out so it's not as, especially in the last two seasons, so it's not as all over the place. It's like a way to ground you know, the story to some extent, which you kind of want to do once you get towards the end of the story. But I think, I mean, for you, Jal, what about for you inspires you to write 
write your write your movies, write scripts, or even just like um, even when you are doing the boring projects, you know, like the the stuff that pays the bills. Mm. Well, what the boring question for the boring projects is, I I don't want to say I experiment, but I'm definitely trying to level up in my technical understanding. And the creative flex comes in the problem solving for certain things. Like I'll be like, oh, I can hear them just fine with these microphones. How do I cancel out that noise? I hear noise going on. How do I focus this down? So when I'm doing stuff like that where I don't have a lot of wiggle room, the creative part is kind of like, oh, if I modulate that and do a compression on this and if I mute this while that's going, I can nullify that noise and get a cleaner signal and that will work out and then I just have to do this and this and it improves my technical abilities and I know how to do stuff and you know what I mean like so that's kind of how I creatively flex with the boring stuff is because then I know when once you know your technical stuff your creative avenues open up because yeah then you can be like well if I reroute this to a different bus and I put an equalizer on this one and an echo on that one I'll get a little tiny bit of reverb and that'll give a little bit more emphasis as to what's going on and it'll cancel out other noise. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, and oh, I, I mean, can you were start- just, you're just telling me about the tracking mechanism you just discovered <laughs> for your camera. So I'm sure for you, there's a lot of ideas rushing in of like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Yes. Like and everything's that's, opened up in a big way. In terms of the actual filmmaking. Yes. Yeah. That's where a lot of that stuff comes from is when I start real, I hack the technical things and I do things that I don't know if other people do it, but I've, I haven't seen or heard them talk about it. So it, to me, it feels exciting to be the person that did it. And back in the day, we talked about this before when like we, we got started and you know, all that kind of stuff. When I talked about video production class, I was the guy who realized if I shot a plate and I shot a thing, I can crossfade and make someone disappear. I love kind of like how you were talking about before i love getting reactions out of people and i love the number one reaction i love getting out of people is when i show them something and then they look at me and go how did you do that (laughs) and you know what i mean like that that's that's a high to me and then i always take that cryptic answer and i just look at him i'm good um (laughs) but the truth of the matter is it was a lot of trial and error it was a lot of just trippy what if i do this like that's we we talked about uh, not being afraid to fail and it's a lot easier. I, I, I don't think people understand this. Practicing is failing in private. And, yes. And, yes, it is. And I love to practice. So the reason we were talking about this was right up until the moment we started recording. I have been doctoring my little setup here to figure out how I'm going to get that active track to work and to make sure it works the way theoretically that I think in my head it is. And if it doesn't, what do I have to do to troubleshoot to get it to work that way? And I will play around with that quite a bit. Like tomorrow, that's going to be, I ordered, <laughs> I literally ordered a giant play pen uh, just so I could set my kid down in it and not have to pay full attention to him while I'm on dad mode tomorrow during the day. And I can keep going on this. And that was maybe about $100, $200 worth of stuff. Granted, it, he needs it. It's it's yeah. necessary in general, right. but um, but I did, I stopped pulling the, uh, I stopped dragging my feet on it because I was motivated to get this done. And yeah, there's problems right now. I can totally tell that it's not calibrated and I'm having a little bit of weight issues with too many things hooked up to the camera. And there's also another issue where, um, 
So when I record in 6K, not 4K, mind you, fucking 6K, um, a five terabyte hard drive, which... Yeah, what is, I don't even know what 6K means. Even. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even really know what the Ks mean once you even get the 4K. So this tiny ass drive, yeah. right? This is a hard drive. Holds five terabytes. That's how tiny it's oh, gotten crap. now. So if 4K, so if 1080 HD is kind of, it's a little bit under 2K, right? So two, 4K is You're right. That. Oh, I got you. Okay. So 6K is triple that. Um, I'm going to be shooting in 6K when I do my personal stuff from now on just because it's forward progressive and I can also manipulate it. So if I'm mastering to 4K, I can, I have extra wiggle room in post where I can fix things that went wrong. Uh, a mic boom down into the shot or something like that. I can fix stuff like that with relatively ease and lose no quality. That's the beautiful yeah. thing about it. Um, but the point that I'm getting at is the, this drive here, right? Mount, it can't fit into my camera. So it mounts on the underside. I had to get a cage accessory to mount it on the underside and then it hooks in through a USB port. The problem I'm facing now, the uh, active track Raven eye that I've hooked up to my camera goes into that USB port and I only have one USB port on the camera. So it's no good to me if, you know, I can track, but I can't record to anything. So now I have to get a different kind of hard drive that hooks into the camera to be able to record stuff, but the problem is they make um, they make those drives only up to one terabyte, which when you're recording in 6K, a terabyte fills up quick, <laughs> really quick. So then it becomes an issue of problem solving that, and it's like, well, okay, I'm going to have to buy multiple cards. Well, if I buy multiple cards, then I have to buy a reader, so that way I have to do a dump, and that way I could do a dump while I'm still recording. I just swap the cameras and someone does the dump, and you know what I mean? To, to yeah. minimize losing time on set. So it's one of those things where I'm trying to realize, well, is it most cost efficient to not hire a camera guy and be able to do this or buy all of this equipment and be able to do this? Because one of those things costs more than the other. To me, sure. buying the equipment and figuring this out in the long term is A, less headaches and B, uh, more cost efficient. So that's the route that I'm taking. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's got all those other kinds of things. Well, it's going to draw more power, which means you're going to have to have an extra battery, which are so many things pile up after a while. And the creativity for me at the moment is problem solving and doing that. And I guess the motivation really is just being is once again, coming down to the point where when I show someone a movie and they go, wow, how did you do that? Because I made a car explode or something you know, stupid like that. That's that's fun. But when I'm on I'm on set and I get a crew person to go, how did you figure this out? That's another level because yeah. these are people within my craft that do this every day. And you know what I mean? For them, for them to see that level of creativity, granted, you get a lot of uh, 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 scoffs and, and sure. you know, that kind of shit. Uh, most of the time it's from the people that are afraid that they're going to lose a job out of it, which they kind of are in this situation. But uh, I don't care. Like th this is the way things are going. If, you know, I have an automated thing. I paid for this. I'm going to use it and I'm going to use it to the best of my ability. And that's exciting to me. That's what gets me going in terms yeah. of technical creativity. That's yeah, yeah. the real thing. When I'm coming up with like story ideas, right? That's a whole nother beast because 
The problem is there, there's a twofold problem. One, what have we not seen in a while or before? Right? Because you, you look at things like I'm looking at things now and everybody's like, oh, we're getting too many superhero movies and this and that. And, that. and it's like, well, okay, why don't you shut up and make a movie that that's not being made? Like, are sure. there a lot of Westerns going on right now? Not really. I yeah, mean, granted, really one of them, one of them is kind of the front leader, reader, uh, leader of the Oscars right now. The uh, Power of the Dog with Benedict Cumberbatch. I didn't I even, yeah, I haven't even heard of that movie. I haven't seen it. Something about it's like uh, he's like a repressed gay cowboy or something like that. I don't know. Uh, it's on Netflix. But there was also another one which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it called The Harder They Fall. Okay. And it's an entire black cast uh, in a western. And okay. it's based and it's based on true people. Um, and it was stylistically amazing, amazing. And it, it just because yeah. of this, it's one of those movies that because of the style, I got into the story and sure. I would highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. The harder they fall. Um, but like things like that start getting me excited because I'm like, Ooh, someone made the Western. Thank you. Good. Something <laughs> different. That's not Batman and Marvel right, and right. all that stuff that kind of fills that void. But then I have to look for, you know, what are we not seeing right now? Stoner and comedy. Yes. We need a stoner comedy again. We are missing stoner comedy. Right now we're missing stoner comedies. We're missing really good heartfelt Christmas movies. We're missing um, buddy movies. Like if you look yeah. at something like Super Bad, right? That was a hit. And then they didn't try and knock it off. Like nobody tried to knock it off. And that's good, but it's also bad because that's kind of what, the audience is looking for right now is like a stupid fun movie. It's basically a, a, a stoner comedy too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, no, exactly. it's a I subgenre, mean, I guess you could say of it. Like, like Wayne's world or, um, yeah. you know, those Bill kinds of excellent venture, that kind of stuff. Those types of things have fallen out of fad. So that's one problem that needs to get solved. And then the other problem is, well, what the fuck am I going to do? That's both in that realm that had, that's fallen out of favor and B new for that realm that's fallen out yeah. of favor because it's one it's one thing to just make another soda like anybody can make a cola but if you're gonna make a cola you gotta make a cola that's different and yeah stands out amongst itself especially as an artist you're looking for that kind of unique uh ability to infuse into something so what i always turn to and if you go on a jow films uh facebook page at the beginning of the pandemic jesus it was 2020 I did a live writer's room where I exposed this um, habit of mine where my muse, my creative muse for story elements and things like that comes from music. That's my number one thing. So like uh, for the, uh, this is what I wanted to do. They, the people that did the live writer's room with me completely, it was corporate boardroom decision and it made me want to kill myself. But the what I did was I played a random song off of my uh, Amazon dot and I said, OK, whatever music plays, we're going to take this song and just the melody, the lyrics, the whatever. And we're just going to kind of creatively come up with some kind of concept. And the idea that or the song that played was uh, Smashing Pumpkins. I forget what the name of the actual song is, but it's the one with the lyrics that goes uh, the rat in the cage. Oh, sure. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, and the yeah, I don't know what the name of it is, but it might even be. I think it's Possum King, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and 
the idea that came to me, it just, it, it's one of those artist things. You can't explain where it comes from. It just does, but something's got to spark it. But the idea that came to me was like, oh, I just want to do a horror movie where uh, people are being kidnapped and kept in cages and experimented on to turn into animals or something or, or other. And the entire movie takes place in the lab between cages where these two people are talking to each other and one of them's like half mutated and the other one hasn't been yet and they're discussed they're having a conversation about life and what it means to be this and that and, and you know it was like a horror kind of it was a very talky horror concept but it was unique right because yeah you don't you don't see a lot of dialogue driven horror movies so that was kind of what sparked that for me so anytime even when it comes down to scenes so like right now i'm working on trying to rewrite haunted again and there's a scene that's kind of stuck for me. And all I do is listen to music, whether it be empty music scores or lyrical music or whatever. And I will listen to things and eventually something will just spark something within me to be like, oh, that solves my problem. I could do this, this, this and this. And that's and then I kill two birds with one stone. Usually I do that while I'm on the treadmill because working out two, I'm working out my brain while I'm working yeah. out my body. And that's usually how I problem solve my muse. You know what I mean? Like I need music. If I, if I don't have music, sure. I'm lost. I don't, I don't know where to go. I, every movie idea I've ever come up with, with the exception of haunted, I should say that, um, haunted came to me in a dream, but digits was completely out of, um, the song that I used in the temp cup, but I didn't get to use in the film cause we don't have the rights to it. The fray, how to, uh, how to save a life. Okay. That song was the the basis that that spurred the entire plot of the movie. You know what I mean? Like it was the lyrics from that song um where did I go wrong? I lost a friend somewhere along. like and the whole idea okay, losing a friend. That's a good concept. Why would you lose a friend? Oh, because you have a girlfriend and she's demanding more of your time and your friends are on a separate track in life than you are and you kind of like this girl but they don't like the you know what I mean? Like all those things came out of me just hearing that one song lyric. And that's where digits kind of spurred for. And then, you know, things come from life and you start pulling from here and there. And subconsciously yeah. you rip off movies that you've seen a million times. There's quotes from Hocus Pocus and Scream 2 and uh, Boy Meets World and all kinds of shit. In, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, in like, I, I do that a lot, too, in Trailer Park World. Like, I love to do that because it's it's fun when people pick up on it because it's like, hey, wait, is that a reference to like... You know, whatever. <laughs> and they don't know sometimes. They're like, yeah. oh, is it just an accidental or is this deliberate? Does this mean something? But yeah, <laughs> most exactly. of the time it's just like, oh, I subconsciously stole that. Oh, well. And like, I'll do like meme stuff where it's like um, references to uh, lines of dialogue and video games and stuff like that where um, you'd either only know it because of it being a meme or because you play that game or whatever, you know, it kind of yeah. fits in. Um, like there was a, <clears throat> there is a scene in season two of trailer park warlock where, <laughs> uh, this vampire character who is very much based off of a cross section of like Dracula from Castlevania, but also, um, this character from an anime called Gonkutsu, which is, Count of Monte Cristo in space. It's a oh. uh, very unique. It's a very unique show, and Sounds actually, like it. It, as as far as like in terms of technical, like new things that they tried in terms of technical ability in that show, nobody else has tried to do it yet. 
And uh, the Count in that show was supposed to be like, you know, like in the Count of Monte Cristo, he's seeking revenge. It kind of looks at it from a different angle where he's no longer the main character and the main character is looking at him from the outside and looking at him as like kind of this monster. So, and he's literally a vamp. He's a space vampire in the show. It's a very weird show. But um, anyway, this vampire character, Pontu, uh, there is a moment when he says the line, um, he says a line reminiscent of this very infamous line in Castlevania where Dracula facing off against Richter Belmont goes, what is a man but a miserable little pile of secrets? <laughs> and that in itself is a quote stolen from some like French philosopher that's totally out of place in a video game. But nevertheless, whoever, you know, whoever the writer was for Castlevania wanted to throw it in. Mm. And so it becomes a sort of feedback loop where everybody's like, oh, it's that thing. It's that thing. Um, for me, I, I managed to make it work within the needs of the story because it was actually that's fun. Is making making the quotes yeah. relevant to what's going on? It was it was it was totally relevant to what was actually going on in the scene, and so I usually only do that when it is relevant to what's going on in the scene. Yeah. Um, and the more relevant it is, and the more it like, the more it doesn't seem out of place the more I enjoy it, like trailer park warlock has several, several, um, references to plan nine from outer space. Hmm. Like in terms of line of lines of dialogue, mostly like there are favorite lines of dialogue that I have from that, uh, from that movie that just swim around in my head (laughs) (laughs) all the time because they're just so fantastic. (laughs) Like, uh, do you ever deliberately steal something knowing that a lot of people have not exposed themselves to that particular story or whatever? Oh, yeah, yeah. Be? Because for me, the idea is maybe they'll hear it, you know, and be like, wait a minute. Like, I also heard that and I also read that in this story. And they start doing the like the hunt, you know, of seeing what the what the originating point of it was. And so really, it's, that's, it's that's a my good ultimate way to- goal. To, to be get like more a, people to watch Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yes, is to get way is for <laughs> to get people to watch things like I I frequently find myself nowadays uh, inserting Aaron Sorkin dialogue sometimes into my my stuff because there's a lot of his work that people that's so underappreciated by people. Uh, the newsroom being one of them. I'm just making my way through the series again right now, and it, while it is very topical because of the way that they handle it. Um, the way he does his dialogue and stuff and the platitudes and monologues and the thought processes of people and stuff, it's very, it's very easy to, like we said, to take it and make it work within something else. Yeah. And I kind of find myself doing that because it's it goes back to that, that great old uh, expression, you know, the best art or good artists borrow great artists steal. And sure. I'm just like, eh, fuck it. I'm not going to try to take credit for this anyway. It's like, Somebody finds it, then I'll be like, "Ooh, it's just an homage." Go watch the newsroom. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's me referencing things that I love, and it, you know, it, if I feel like in a way, it kind of creates a weird bond between creator and audience, because they'll be like, "Oh, you like that? I like that too. I can't believe you made that." Oh, reference what's and- weirder even is uh, 
So a writer who I also reference a lot in Trailer Park Warlock, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, he, I found out later on that he also will stick in quotes in references to Plan 9 from Outer Space in his books. And these are kind of like... I almost thought you were going to say he references uh, Trailer Park Warlock, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that would be weird. That would be weird because he's dead, but... Um, oh, that's, yeah, that yeah, no, crazy. He's, yeah, uh, he, he passed away probably 2009, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not like his books are humorous, but they do cover, like, heavy topics in regards to how we perceive reality and stuff like that. And part of his way of... Um, Part of his way of interacting with the audience is having sarcasm, humor, and also like pop cultural references in his works. Mm. So he frequently will talk about movies to sort of explain certain ideas in regards to, especially, um, so like right now I'm reading Cosmic Trigger 3, which was the last of his sort of autobiographical works. Um, in that he is talking a lot about like movie magic, basically, and how that, in a lot of ways, our perceptions of reality work in very similar ways. And so he's he does a lot of referencing Orson Welles and Orson Welles movies, particularly F is uh, F for Fake, and um, what the hell's the name of that movie? Because I just watched it the other day. Um, The Touch of Evil. So yeah. those two movies in particular, he likes a lot because they deal with very ambiguous ideas and a lot of the trickery that Orson Welles does in his movies work in tandem with his themes. So Touch of Evil, one of the big themes of it is um, trying to ascertain like what is good and what is bad when when the situation is so complicated and gray and you're not really sure how to assess, you know, cause you have multiple yeah. perspectives that you have to look at a particular situation at such as a crime. Right. Um, and he, he uses several filmmaking techniques in the movie to sort of get across that idea so that you're never really sure. And you're never really certain like who is the bad guy. Like you yeah. have your, you have your your hunches, hunches, yeah, yeah. but you're never quite you're never quite sure who do you who do you pin the moral blame on, which is very much like a lot of our real life is like that, right? A lot of crimes are like that, where you're not you can't always be certain who is the person to blame, or you're not entirely certain where, like, how do these events end up the way that they end. So, um, anyway, point is, is I think that for Robert Anton Wilson is a big inspiration because he's, he has a, he has a very similar conception and perspective on reality, which is that it's very difficult to say with certainty, what is really right? What is really wrong? What is really good? What is really bad? You sort of have to accept that on some level, you're going to deal with a fuzzy kind of logic when you come to your conclusions and have the best logic that you can have, but also recognize that all of that, all of that work that you're doing is on some point guesswork. So anyway, that 
once again feeds into Trailer Park Warlock and how I kind of deal with the themes in Trailer Park Warlock because well, that ambiguity adds for a lot of absurd kind of humor. Mm. Um, and I like, I enjoy absurd humor for that reason. I, I love humor that sort of plays with uh, logical inconsistencies or like logical paradoxes, things where you, you kind of go, wait, but if that's true, then, you know. So like that kind of stuff, uh, that kind of stuff is a big inspiration for me. And I, so you just, you're just kind of looking for things that are within the same realm of what you want to accomplish. And then by exposing yourself to those things, it kind of stirs up ideas. Well, and what I was also saying is just interesting because um, I think for me, it's interesting to find that as I was reading Robert Anton Wilson and also as I was drawing Trailer Park Warlock, I found these similarities that came about synchronistically. Like I hadn't read, I hadn't found all, I hadn't found any of Robert Anton Wilson's references to Plan 9 from Outer Space until very recently, after I had already done several <laughs> references to Plan 9. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like we're both on the same, we're like both on the same weird track of like what we find entertaining and humorous. Cause he also finds, B movies to have their own sort of unique appeal. And so that creates this, that creates this, when you're talking about the audience creator bond, it creates this bond. Cause like, that's what creates those bonds, right? Is you find similarities between you and somebody else that you didn't even realize you had. And it comes up over time, just sort of organically. And that creates such a, that creates such a tight knit feeling because it's almost like, oh, it's like we knew each other before we ever even knew each other. And that's something that I think, I think that that can be missing, you know, in a lot of modern media. Um, you think audiences are looking for entertainment or for friends? Well, I think it's, it's kind of that thing where you look at yeah. something that you can relate to and you're like, oh, this guy could be a friend. You know, what? you as the creator aren't, it's a one-sided phone call. But yeah. You know what I mean? Like for for people that like, do you think it's because it fulfills that need where it's like, hey, maybe I'm not alone in loving this thing or you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I think so. I think that's why artists like to throw out their references in their work. And I think that's also why podcasts are such a popular form of entertainment nowadays is because it's um, uh, the term people are throwing around nowadays is parasocial, which is the sense of which just means like you're in a you're in a social relationship with somebody but not really so like okay there's a lot of podcasts like i i can't imagine it's the next version of work wife <laughs> yeah ex yeah yeah i get what you're saying <laughs> well i mean like another way of putting this is like how many people like if you could actually plug in a recorder into people's brains how many hours of recordings could you get of people who have had imaginary conversations in their heads with like Joe Rogan? You know what I mean? That would because, be interesting. <laughs> because there are a lot of people who listen to podcasts and then they get into this mood where they, they start to form um, an imaginary. This is like how all fans start, yes, right? right? They start to create an imaginary bond with that person. This is how all stalkers begin as well. Yes, Exactly. Uh, they start to form that imaginary bond with that person because they start learning more about them. They start learning all their ins and outs, and mm -hmm. they get to this. They get into this place where it's like, 
oh, I know this person. Like, he was my friend. You know what I mean? Yep. Which is how I felt after I read uh, Jerusalem by Alan Moore. Like, it's so personal that I got to a point where I, I, I felt like I now know too much about this person. <laughs> like, I could probably strike up a conversation with them if I ran into him on the street, you know, just about his personal life. Yeah. Which is probably not true, but it feels that way. And that's, right. um, I certainly think that that is a mutual sort of transaction where an artist is trying to project that out and audiences are connecting to it. Right. So do you think going back to the, the topic of inspiration, do you think that that's an, in a motivating factor for using, con I don't want to say creating content, but using established content yeah. uh, by artists. I mean, I feel like that. I feel that like that has to be one of the many reasons why Community was written the way that was written, mm. because it was a show that was written to to reach out and connect with more nerdy, like yeah. media focused people. You know, yes, very much so. People who are maybe more into Quentin Tarantino films or, you know, into watching, um, watching, rewatching seasons of shows over and over again because mm -hmm. it, it was a show that rewarded people in that same way. Yeah. And so I think that that was part of the idea of like writing that show is to connect with an audience in that way and why so many people liked it. Absolutely. Awesome. They, they absolutely accomplished their goal, which is yeah. like one of the hardest things that an artist will ever do. Um, and you know, they did great. It just it did, it was so niche at the time, but it, if only more people, the people were out there, they just didn't, they weren't aware that it existed. And it's one of those things where that's where that discussion comes back up where, well, is my art any good? Am I any good as an artist where you could be fucking phenomenal and just not have the right distribution channels. And despite being on fucking NBC, they didn't promote it the right way. They didn't get sure. it out there. They didn't push it. They didn't, you know what I mean? And it floundered and they, they tinkered with what was already working so beautifully and brilliantly. And then it started going downhill and then it fell apart. And that was what ruined it. But it was great beforehand. And it, it all came from, like you said, that intent of, you know, creating something. It, it, I don't want to call it meta, but it was definitely within the realm of acknowledging genre and cliche and tropes and all yeah. the things that were, you know, popular pop culture and things like that in a way that didn't feel dated, which is sure. so weird about it because like something like D and D was big in the eighties. Right. And it's big now. I don't know if it was big in the nineties or early two K cause I've never been a D and D person, but uh, like, I, I don't remember hearing much about it. And then more recently it's come back like big time into fashion you can kind of say Stranger Things was the spur of that, but at the same time, there was really no Stranger Things motivated, maybe or at least as far as I know, motivated the like the D and D episode of Community, which is one of the best fucking episodes of television ever. Um, and like to me, that that definitely was within that realm of hey, I like D and D. Let's do a D and D episode. Okay, well, what's the D and D about? Well. Some people relate to D and D, but some people don't. How about depression? Like, <laughs> let's work that depression and fat shaming. Let's work all that into this, and it worked. And like, that's like it, it hits. Like, I was not into D and D, 
but that episode makes me want to get into D&D because I related to the whole isolation, depression kind of thing aspect of it. And by doing that, like they connected with their audience. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of a lot of artists don't understand. Like a lot of artists I find are very preachy where they want to talk and educate their their audience and this and that. And to some extent, that is fine. Like, you know, it, it's it, there's nothing wrong with opening up new trains of thought and um, other creative avenues and whatever it may be. But at the same time, like that's one of the things that I think a lot of artists need to start thinking about for inspiration is not looking down on your audience. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And more so having it as a conversation between people that can relate. And we talked about this with like emotional undertones, like things need to be primal. And that's the thing that a lot of artists kind of forget that we're all human. We're we're all mostly well-intentioned. We're all like flawed. We all make mistakes. We all feel sorry. We all are ashamed of things about ourselves. You know, like all of these things. And instead of like preaching down that you have the answer, sometimes it's just great to just be like, Hey, me too. Right. No pun intended. Well, and that was, I mean, that was a big theme. I feel like to some extent in Scream 5, as they were talking a lot about elevated horror and like not Mm. being judgy of elevated horror, but just saying like, hey, you know, it's good to have movies where you give like a more nuanced or like, you know, big topic aspect to it. But sometimes it's nice to just have a horror movie where it's just like you got a murderer. Yeah. You know? You don't die yeah yeah exactly that, uh, that is one thing that i do have an issue with though is the the particular titling of that genre as elevated horror because it innately says we're better than you well and that's exactly like why i was thinking about when you brought it up because it does insinuate that a lot it doesn't and you get that sense oftentimes when you watch those kind of movies because you get a you get this idea of like, oh well, this is for the smart kids, you know. This is a movie for smart kids who can catch all the references or whatever. But that's or, just pretentious to me. Sure. That that's all that that is. It's like, oh, we are not the AT slasher. This has meaning. And most of the time I'm just like, yeah, I've seen that in, you know. Uh, killer zombie sleepover five like yeah. you know like the same themes were reoccurring in some horrible b movie um and you just you took all the fun out of it that's yeah. that's what elevated horror is to me is horror movies without the fun that's and, definitely uh how i felt after i watched midsummer like i i was like you know there's a lot of potential for this to be a fun enjoyable horror movie but it was just kind of a slog for that reason because the whole yeah. time you're watching it's just like okay what's the point you're trying to make here okay whatever you know but see and that's the thing is like i don't think that that kind of stuff shouldn't like be stripped from horror but i think there's a yeah. balance that you need to find because yeah i can tell you right now that I would I I, don't, I just because I, I can't think of a better name for the genre at the moment, but like an elevated horror movie that I think is still fun is Get Out. Jordan Peele's movie. sure that's amazing. And at the same time, I can look at a movie called The Exorcist, right? And I can still sell, say that's that's an elevated that's like an OG like elevated oh, yeah. horror movie, but it's still fucking fun because I'm getting actually scared. I'm not yeah. bored 
as to what's going on half the time. Well, so, and that's what makes, I think, the idea of what should make elevated horror interesting is part of what what's horrifying hmm. are those bigger concepts, right? Sure. You know, like the concept in Get Out of, like, how are how are white people imperializing black minds? Or in The Exorcist, like, how how are everybody's minds being imperialized by forces outside of our own control mm. as humans, right? Like, and you could be metaphorical about it. You don't have to get literal and say, like, demons, but just think about, sure. um, you know, mental health or mass hysteria or stuff like that, you know, yeah. things that happen frequently, which is interesting, too, because something that happened when the exorcist was first released is you had people who were just like running out of the theater screaming, you mm. know, because it was too much for them, mm. which is, I mean, it's that psycho was another, uh, infamous yep. example of that. And, um, just to pull back into Orson Welles, like this is something that happens with media where, uh, one of his most infamous things was the war, war of the worlds broadcast that he did, on Halloween and people thought it was real because they, they, he was so good at trying to mimic what a radio broadcast sounded like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, imagine nowadays, like, like lo-fi is such a big thing because it emulates a sound from a previous time. Well, like Orson Welles is like, I'm going to emulate the sound of now and do it in such a way that, you know, people aren't going to figure out that this is just, this is actually fake. They're going right. to think that it's real, which that is the ultimate goal, I think, for most artists is to fool people. And if you can fool somebody into thinking that it's real, that's a pretty big compliment, right, as an artist. Absolutely. That's like all you're going, especially in filmmaking, like yeah, like the, the audiovisual medium, like suspension of disbelief. That's the number one thing that you're set out to do in the first 10 minutes is establish what is real and what is not and do not deter from that. And that's something a lot of people don't understand about um, what makes a movie good or bad is when you take, is when you notice, like, that's the thing about like a lot of art. And, and if, if art is good, you don't notice things about it. Like you, you're just so like engaged in the story. Like I remember reading a goosebumps book that uh, as a kid, most of the goosebumps books were just goosebumps books. It was a book, you read it and you're done. And I remember there was one book that I had to like, stop halfway through a fucking goosebumps book which were pretty campy and cheesy at, sure. at times too um i had to stop fold the book and put it down and come back to it like during the daytime because i was so creeped out uh where the red fern grows as a kid you read that book and if you're not crying by the end right you you don't have a heart and that's just one of those things where nobody's looking at like Oh, I loved the page count and how the <laughs> the description of that scene was so thrilling. Like, no, you don't notice that shit because you're so sucked into turning that page, yeah, at, or or just you know listening to the uh, the radio or glued to the screen, whatever it may be. That's where like that that is the most important. And I take a lot of, and like I, this goes back to the inspiration thing where me I take joy in amazing people so much so that when that when it's over they come and they ask me how'd you do that like because in the because that means that i got them yeah that means that i pulled something off and then they were like wait a minute andrew's not fucking capable of blowing up a fucking skyscraper how did what 
uh, and then you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where it's like, no, he that that was his house that he blew up in the movie, but his house is still there. Like, what happened? What? How did you do that? Like, you legitimately caught me off guard, and, and like that's the high that I ride yeah. um, when I do it. So like the inspiration of blurring that line, which incidentally is like a big theme in Haunted. Um, that's, that's the fun for me. That's where I, that's where I live is that joy of knowing that I have provided some escapism for somebody. And I don't want to say it gets me off. Cause that's not, that's, that's so vulgar. I would much rather describe it as that's what makes me feel alive. When I know sure. I've contributed to somebody else's life in a way that was positively distracting. That makes sure. sense. Yeah, absolutely. That that's a huge I mean that look, that kind of compliment is the biggest kind of comp I feel like the biggest kind of compliment you can get from an audience member. Um I definitely read some things in the uh la the last episode that I posted for Trailer Park Warlock where people were talking about you know, this was something that helped me I love to read this and it helped me like just calm down for the night before I went to bed or it got me through the week or whatever, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the kind of thing where oh, people, people feel like interacting with what you're making adds to their life. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do, especially in a media landscape like ours nowadays where you're just, I mean, you're inundated with stuff. So yeah. it's not like, it, it, it takes a lot to get somebody's attention and it takes even more to get somebody's attention and then have an imp, like an, a, a deeper emotional impact where they feel that bond, you know, with the art author or with the work. Um, it's not, it's not an easy thing to pull off. And I mean, quite honestly, rarely do artists even get to accomplish that, you know? True. So we're coming down to the wire um, I'm going to ask for your advice and, you know, you can sum up things that we've said already or throw out anything new, but if someone was up against writer's block or a creative hurdle, um, what would be your suggestions or like, what are ways that you get around writer's block or, uh, creative difficulties and such that yeah. you would recommend people do? I mean, I think usually the first thing I do is I just step away from the drawing board and go do something else, you know, go for a walk or go take care of chores or whatever. Mm. Um, that's the time also in which I dig into some of my favorite media, like when I was younger, to because that stuff tends to have the the deeper emotional roots, and I'll start to look at, okay, what was it that I liked about this? when I was a kid or when I was younger, what is it about it that makes me feel nostalgic about it now? And then in tracing that path, finding the commonalities, and then that mm. becomes, that becomes inspiration for something that I want to do because then I see, Oh, okay, this is what I really liked about it. Here are the, here are the themes in this that I think or I relate with that I'd want to see in my own work. Um, those are the two big ones that I can think of. And then the the third that I always like to talk about is reaching back into just personal history and thinking about, you know, observations or memories or even things that have happened during the day that stuck out to you that can become 
points of interest or points of inspiration to add into stories or become stories themselves. So those are my three. I would say kind of piggybacking on off of what you're saying. Um, when you talk about stepping away, I, I am going to rephrase that in my way where it's, this is the way I look at it, where it's just go live your life. Yeah. Not necessarily do something else, but live your life. Like not focusing on what the problem is or anything like that. Like a lot of ideas will come to you. You know, you, you said go for a walk, but me, like I go down to the boardwalk on the beach for me. And it's not like one of those like really like artsy pretentious things where I'm staring out at the water as the waves crash <laughs> against the the breakwater. It's like, okay to do that, Joe. It's okay to do that when you're depressed or your girlfriend broke up with you or some shit like that, but uh it ain't gonna do nothing. Um but no like just going like and even if it was just like uh breaking things from the norm. When I say go live your life, breaking yeah. from the norm. So like Going and walking on the boardwalk is a norm for me. That's how I get in some exercise. Going to the grocery store, that's some exercise. But, but, going to a theme, an amusement park that maybe I've never been to before, that kind of excitement of trying something new. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why I do so much cooking. I like to do, I like to try different recipes. Like, I try not to have the same thing almost every time. Like, yeah, there's staples like pizza and spaghetti and burgers sure. or whatever that I have all the time. But... Once or twice a week, I like to mix it up and try something brand new. So, like, at the moment, uh, one of the things that I'm doing, I realized, uh, because it's March and St. Patty's Day is coming up, but I, I know that I am, my genetics are mostly Scottish. Um, I've been looking up, like, a lot of Scottish recipes. So, like, I looked up haggis, and I was like, oh, oh, I don't know <laughs> if I want to eat this. But, right. but then it started turning some creative wheels for me where I was like, oh, how about I just take all the seasonings that they use in haggis and make a steak rub out of it and see what happens. And like, that's, that's the next thing that I'm planning on doing. And that kind of stuff distracts me. And that using that creative energy over there allows me to not dwell on the problems that I'm facing down here in my uh, office. Yeah. And that allows me to come back to it fresh so it's like I still have creative energy I need to get out, but I'm putting it somewhere else so that way, you know, this side can heal a little bit. It's like atrophy. When you want, like, you work out a muscle so much, you can, you got to let it rest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in order to grow and, and, and improve and everything like that. Um, the other recommendation that I would make, and this is what I always do, and you talk about running to, like, medium, and, I yeah, I do that um, to some extent. But mostly from a research perspective, and that's more so where I do. So, like, right now I've got a, a, a block of trying to figure out what I'm trying to do to fix a problem. I'm going to books. I'm going to books. And I'm not reading the whole book, but I'm going right to that chapter contents, and I'm looking, okay, that might be right. That might help me. And I'm just going and I'm skimming, and that's where ideas start coming to me. It's like, oh, I could do this. Oh, that's a way to do this. That's a way to do that. Sometimes within those books, they recommend movies that I've never seen. And I'm like, oh, I should check out that movie. And yeah. like movies I've never even heard of. And I'm just like, ooh, this is kind of in vain with what I'm doing. And that goes back to the whole, let me steal some shit nobody's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> but it, it, here's the thing. If nobody ever heard of it or most people haven't heard of it, I don't know if it's necessarily stealing when you take that execution because it's almost like, hey, they didn't get the distribution that they should have. Yeah, maybe I mean, that's, I will. 
that's how and, a lot of homage works too. You know, I mean, that's so much of Quentin Tarantino's movies are based off of that. Oh, absolutely. Like, oh, here I'm going to reference a movie hardly anybody knows about because I liked it growing up or whatever. Right. But he's, he's not necessarily referencing an entire movie. He's rep- referencing one shot in one scene in one yeah. movie, you know what I like? Yeah. And to take that idea and it's like, Oh, does that mean that no one can ever do that shot ever again? That would mean that we can never show establishing shots of a house anymore, or we can never blow up a car and turn the camera upside down anymore. Like, why can't we do that? Like they do that all the time. So why can't we do that with another shot? And you know what I mean? Like the whole idea of plagiarism is bullshit to me, but how many times was the opening scene of jaws like remixed referenced in nineties television? I mean, yeah. just like hundreds of times because it's it was an infamous scene for people who grew up on it. And that's I'm sure you could I, I that's the only reference that I can think of right now. But I'm sure there are a bunch of other. I mean, like the Godfather has some scenes that people that you get see referenced all the time. And it's like movies that have that kind of like broad cultural appeal. You know, so you could you could look at something like Jaws. Right. And that mm-hmm. movie. Um, has a lot of first-person perspective from the shark, right? Because the shark didn't work. Everybody knows the story. But the question I'm curious to know is, did the effectiveness of that first-person viewership of the shark from Jaws, because it came out in 1975, was that the basis for the opening scene of Halloween, where Michael Myers is its first person perspective and you watch him as he stalks his sister and Jaws was before and, Halloween. Yep. Halloween okay. is 1978. Jaws is 1975. So is it possible that that was inspiration for something I else? I certainly that, see that being the case. Right. That makes so sense then, to me. Then the question begs is because everybody loves that opening sequence for the original Halloween. And that, that begs the question, well, is that, you know, is it, it, it was possibly inspired by that. So, does that mean that it's not as iconic and effective as it was before? Right. No, absolutely well, not. I'm, and I'm pretty sure you could trace a line from Jaws to like Hitchcock because oh, sure, there are a absolutely. bunch of Hitchcock movies that use that technique too. Yeah, I think he does it in Psycho, doesn't he? he doesn't use pretty sure he person? does it in Psycho. And I mean, I'm obviously Spielberg watched a lot of Hitchcock. Everybody sure. watched a lot of Hitchcock at that time Who because he been? was he was this auteur director that you know had captured the world at the time. Yep. So it's 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 hard not to be influenced, right? A lot of times when we talk about inspiration, what we also mean is influence. Yeah. In the sense of we can't even help ourselves to reference or talk about that thing because it's quintessential to our growing up or to our life, you know? Yep. Like I don't even know how many unconscious things are in my work that's like pulled from Jurassic Park, you know? <laughs> like and I'm sure I'll find it. I'll just come across it one day and be like, oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, it's nice when you figure it out, though, because like even right now, Haunted, to some extent, I know there's influences from Jurassic Park because it's a bunch of people wandering through the woods with like, quote unquote, monsters attacking them and this and that. And, and yeah. you know, there's so many parallels of um, some of my favorite movies that I've noticed that I can use those as sources of inspiration where it's like oh in jurassic park spielberg did this during that scene how do i translate that to my scene and how was it how would i make it better how would i do it my way how would you know what i mean like it opens up that avenue 
Jurassic Park. Willy Wonka is very similar, once again, to what I'm doing. If I told you Jurassic Park and Willy Wonka were similar movies, you'd look at me sideways because it's like one's about dinosaurs eating people and the other one's about a guy in his chocolate factory. And it's like, no, everybody's on a quote unquote tour and the tour is going horribly wrong. Like there's there's ways to find um, inspiration within those things. So it's nice to be able to identify them before yeah. somebody else points it out to you. <laughs> hey, you ripped this off. Um, no, I didn't. Look away. <laughs> but anyway, uh, do you have anything else to add? Because we are right at one hour, and otherwise I am pretty good unless you are. No, I mean, I think that says everything, really. Uh, I, I liked I liked that we had the time to sort of hit on that last bit about, you know, how how artists influence us unconsciously, because that is something that I think like I said earlier, you know, when we think about inspiration, that is like another way of looking at it, right? Like, I'm very, I'm very curious to know if some of the throwaway stuff that we've just put in stuff because, oh, whatever, this is how I would say, or that character would say this or that. If one day that will be an homage from somebody else <laughs> to, to our work, you know what, I, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I wonder yeah. if Hitchcock and Spielberg knew that they were making stuff that people were going to rip off at some point, or if it was just, oh, we couldn't get the light to do it the right way so we just turned the camera and that's how that came out and then somebody found that brilliant and decided oh i'm gonna do it like that because that did this to me and yeah i'm very curious to know if that'll ever happen (laughs) yeah i mean it's hard for me to imagine how it being any other way other than you know for them it 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 seems completely incidental that it worked out that way because when you're in the middle of creating you don't know what's gonna you, you never know, know what's going to hit. Gonna, uh, Everything, it, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this is going to hit. No, it doesn't. Everybody's talking about that other thing. All right, cool. Like, I'm happy to take credit for it. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Take it easy. Take it easy.